hi everybody. Uh, my name is Dominic Compulsive Eater and Food Addict uh, from Connecticut these days, so East Coast, which means it's 10.30 my time, which means it's past my bedtime, but hey, I never turned down an invitation to talk. So uh, actually had dinner a little bit late tonight and coffee a little bit late this afternoon. So that's the way I prepare. So I've, I'm one of the old timers. I've been around a long time. Uh, came in in 1982, January 26, 1982, which means next month will be 39 years for me. I count my abstinence as 37 years. I'm maintaining a little under a 200 pound weight loss now for about 35 years. So I came to the program uh, in pretty bad shape, low bottom, uh, suicidal. 30 days before I went to my first meeting, I had climbed on a bridge over the Hudson River in New York in the middle of the night, uh, climbed up. Uh, obviously, I did not jump or I would not be here today because you don't jump off of those bridges into the Hudson River and last, and that was the idea. I had had, had enough of life. I did not see any prospects at all. Uh, I just didn't want to live. I had focused and obsessed really on suicide for several years. That would be in my late thirties. So as I said, I came here when I was 41. So what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to, I like to focus on solutions. And so I'm just going to give you a little bit about my background and then I'm going to go through the transformation process of the 12 steps, which is what this is all about for me. You know, food was, yes, I was grossly obese, but food was not my real problem. My real problem was between my ears, of course. It was very clear that the food was a symptom. It wasn't clear in the beginning, of course. It took, took a lot of tough love sponsoring to help me understand that food was not my problem. My thinking was my problem. Uh, but yes, I had become addicted to certain foods and I am addicted to sugars and refined carbohydrates. As a chemical reaction in my brain, it's just like an alcoholic with alcohol. Uh, those substances start the craving uh, going and then who knows where I'm gonna stop. So when I say I'm abstinent for 37 years, that means uh, uh, three meals a day, nothing in between, no sugar and no refined carbohydrates. And I still, I haven't done this all of the years, but I am now the last three or four years weighing and measuring, so at home, weigh and measure. So I have a pretty strict regimen that I, that I follow on the plan of eating, and that's what I need to do to hold on. That's the physical thing that I need to do. So give me, let me give you a little background. I come from the, from the uh, Appalachian Mountains. Uh, West Virginia was my home. I grew up in a small backwoods country, coal mining town. My earliest members, memories are of sitting on my porch and watching the coal miners go by at six or seven in the morning on their way to the mine and then at five or six at night, seeing them walking back past the house on their way out of the mine. Those were the old days when the, when coal mining was all about crawling in with your pick and shovel and digging out shovel by shovel by shovel by shovel. Uh, of course, it's not like that anymore. So very backwoods country. Um, uh, I was exposed to some really very backwoods, right wing, ultra conservative religion, uh, Christian religions, which forever has poisoned my life. Uh, so I came to the program as an atheist, but let me back up a little bit more. Fear, doubt, and insecurity, to use that well-known phrase in AA, uh, dominated my life 
as a small child as early as I can remember. That's all, all I can remember. I always had this feeling that I was a little out of step with everybody else, that I was different, that I was kind of separate, uh, distrustful. I was afraid. The world was a very hostile and unfriendly place where I had to do a lot of pretending and play acting in order to get along. I was an only child. I had uh, an untreated, mentally ill, smothering mother and a no feelings workaholic father who I didn't see very much. There's no question what I got from my mother in the earliest days, uh, and that was fear, fear, uh, feeling of being somehow different from others, feelings of less than, not good enough, separate, never quite fit in, feeling like I'm on the outside looking in, kind of them versus us. This was backwoods country, and it was it was a very siege mentality there as I look back and understand it. But it was, we had our little world here and all, everybody else out there was the enemy. They were all different. They were out to hurt us. If you know the history of parts of the Appalachian where I come from with the destruction of the timber uh, in, in one century and the destruction of the coal and cities and mountains and forests in another, you can get some idea what that was about, but that's, that's not a subject for, for OA here. But that's the kind of place that I, that I lived in. Uh, they were not poor, poor. We had enough, uh, but we were certainly not wealthy at all. Uh, what I got from my mother was fear, as I said, uh, never quite fit in. From my dad, I got never ask for help. Self-sufficiency is everything, uh, particularly for men. And men don't do feelings. Um, not, uh, I got a work ethic from him, though. Uh, he taught me pretty early that there is no free lunch. That nothing comes from nothing. And so he had me working from about sixth, seventh grade on uh, all the time that I was possibly available after school or in the summers. So uh, that's where I came, come from. Um, skip ahead 20 years to program when I came in at age 41. Through my 20s and 30s, I had put on the act of playing what I thought was the right thing to do. I had escaped from my culture. And I had spent some time in the military. I had gone to school, got a good education, uh, working my way through, of course, at nights, and then got a job in a corporation. At that time, it was the wealthiest corporation on earth, believe it or not, and uh, uh, did very, very well in that corporation, rose through the ranks into the executive ranks through, the, through my late 20s and uh, early 30s. So if you didn't see me and look at me, you would say, wow, the American dream, a guy that came from nothing and look where he is now. I was living in New York. I was living in the right section of New York. I was driving the right cars. Uh, I had uh, my kids in the right schools, all that stuff. However, if you saw me, you would have seen a guy who on the outside was obese and going up and down. My 20s and 30s was up and down, up and down. I started serious eating at, at uh, uh, early 20s or late teens, probably early 20s, when the food really, really started with me. And then it was the familiar stair step. 
you know, gain 50 or 60, lose 20 or 30, and then the numbers started getting bigger. Lose 100, gain back all of it in a very short time. You know, take a year and a half to lose 100 and gain it all back in six months, that kind of stuff. So food really began taking over and screwing up my life in my 20s and 30s. While on the outside, I was working, doing okay, making money, etc. as I said. But on the inside, I was miserable. I hated myself. And as I said, to make a long story short, I concluded in my 30s, I was stuck. I was a prisoner. I had nowhere to go. I could see no hope for the future. And I said, screw it. I'm just going to find a way to check out. And I actually obsessed on suicide and, and looked at the various ways of committing suicide. I had two small children, and the idea was to make it as least painful for them as possible. And that's how I got to the bridge. With the bridge, there would be nobody. The body would wash out to sea or be eaten, etc. So that night I had, take, I had written the notes. I had gone to the bridge, left the car on the side, the whole thing, but, but never never did it. 30 days later, I walked into my o, first OA meeting. Um, when I came to the program, I was a lot of the same things that I've just talked about from my childhood and early years. Uh, a lot of pretense and fear and doubt and insecurity. My whole work life was pretense. Everything was on stage. Everything was pretense and pretending. Uh, I still had feelings of less than uh, feelings of victim. That's how you get to the suicide. Um, all that, despite the high functioning person on the outside, as I, as I said, this inside outside disparity was the real was right at the core of me hating myself so much doing one thing. And yet inside every voice in there said, this is not the right thing to do. This is not who you are. So tremendous disparity, uh, when I came here, um, I came in the door and they started talking to me. They put a big book and an AA 12 in my hand. Of course, that's all we had at that time. Uh, and a tough love sponsor. And I needed the tough love sponsor. Uh, here I was, this edu educated guy uh, with, a, with a guy that I don't think even had a high school education. But he had 16 years of sobriety in AA, but had put, picked up the food. You know, he had changed chairs on the Titanic, so to speak. So I met him in OA. But he knew the big book backward and forward, and he became my sponsor. And he was the tough love type of guy that I that, that I needed. Um, he said, look, Don, all you have to do is three simple things. He said, one, just need to put down this mood-altering foods and develop a structured way of eating. Two, you need to change your personality so that you can better deal with life's problems and not eat for comfort or escape. And three, simply develop a personal spiritual connection. I know you're an atheist now. And I said, you are effing crazy. Are you silly? How can Ed, how can I do anything like that? And that's the first time he said, shut up, take the cotton out of your ears, put it in your mouth, shut up, listen and follow directions. And if you don't want to do that, then you're wasting my time and just go ahead and leave and I'll help somebody else. So, you know, I stuck around. And I needed that, that kind of tough love, that uh, tough love sponsor. So that's kind of how I got here. Um, let me run through the step process now. I'm going to uh, go quickly through this transformation process. As I said, I came as an atheist. 
And so uh, I didn't want any of the God stuff. And so I went through the steps as uh, not using the word God, not, not doing that at all. And let me explain as I go through, you'll, you'll see what I mean by that. Um, step one, I put down the food. They told me I had to detox from food so I could objectively examine my life. I didn't know exactly what that meant, but I went off of the sugar. And after three weeks off of the sugar, I knew what detox meant because the world suddenly cleared up. Uh, I was seeing a world that I hadn't seen before, couldn't remember seeing. And it turned out I had been walking around drunk on food for years and years and years and didn't even know it until I stopped it. They say, you want to find out if you're addicted to something, just stop it. If you can't stop, then that answers the question. Or if you do stop it for a while and then your head clears, then you know you're addicted to it too. So um, that's what they said. You've got to put down the food first and then we can work on the real stuff. So step two for me, you know, none of the higher power stuff. If there had been no recovery in the rooms though, I would not be here because there was recovery in the rooms. There was people in the rooms that used to be where I was and they weren't there anymore. There were people that used to weigh 150 or 200 pounds more and they weren't there anymore. So they gave me hope that even if I didn't understand this stuff, stick around and do it anyway. Something was going on here. And again, back to Charlie, he kept saying, you don't have to understand it. Just follow the directions. Just dive in, take the action. This is a program of action after action after action. And I said, but it doesn't make sense. And he said, you know, Don, your problem is you're educated beyond your intelligence. And at first I thought that was a compliment. It was not a compliment. It was more of that, you know, get off of the horse, quit thinking and just follow the damn directions. The program works if you work it. Step three for me, again, no God here. What I did in step three was commit myself to work in the program. I signed a contract and said, I'm going to do this. Because I, I, I was told one, two, and three were preparing me. Four through nine were going to make the changes, and 10, 11, 12 was the way I held on to it. So one, two, and three were the foundation of the house. Four through nine were going to be the walls. 10, 11, and 12 was going to be the roof. So I said, okay, I'll sign the contract. So for me, free, the surrender in step three was not giving up. It was deciding to cooperate. All right, I'll cooperate with a new set of ideas. As I look back now, of course, I can see that the new set of ideas, that was my higher power. Charlie was a higher power. The program was a higher power. All the recovery in the rooms were a higher power because they gave me hope and they gave me directions, a whole new set of ideas. And then, of course, I got into steps four through seven where all the action is. I began to identify the things that were, that were real problems in me. And there was the, the, the anger and the resentment, the blaming, the victim mentality that I've talked about. I'm going to come back and talk a little bit more about that later. So uh, I, I spent a lot of time on four, five, six, and seven. Um, I began to, to, to make changes there. I began to face life. I began to let go of that not good enough stuff. I began to, to uh, think about gradually how can I put in rather than how can I get out? Because, you know, I was the most self-centered person in the world, had no idea that I was self-centered. Doesn't everybody want their own way? Isn't, isn't, don't, don't we all think that we know the right way for everybody to behave? I spent so much time doing mental, uh, making mental movies in my head about the way things should go, 
how they ought to go, what you should do, how you should respond, what they should do, etc. From the president right on down to my spouse and my and my and my kids. That's the self-centeredness of the of the big book. I'll come back and talk a little bit more about that later. Eight and nine. Uh, eight and nine were basically for me growing up, taking full responsibility for myself, uh, for what I had done, making amends, putting the past away. I had a lot of stuff in the past in that fifth step. I spent four hours in my fifth step. It was the very first time in my life I had ever been honest with another human being. Something happened in that fifth step. Don't know quite what it was, but I say now with retrospect, it was probably the beginning of my spiritual awakening that just emptying out, getting honest with somebody because I felt something after that that was pretty remarkable stuff. So eight and nine were taking full responsibility, cleaning up the past and uh, wonderful things began to happen. Some of those, you know, the obsession was, was, was lifted day at a time, the obsession was lifted. Life began to go get so much better. Uh, the healing came. Um, today, of course, and then uh, I, I continued through the steps. And as I said, 10, 11, and 12 were about okay. Continuing to do all those things that got you here. The remarkable transformation. My life had been saved. Uh, that suicide thing didn't go away quickly, by the way. That took time. I was here several months before I began to think that maybe there was some possibility. Maybe there was, in fact, some reason. Again, hope came from the rooms and the recovery in the rooms. So uh, step 10 then and, and today, every morning I inventory my emotional and spiritual condition, uh, make the necessary corrections. I do the inventory in the morning. I did it at night for many years, as the big book suggests. Uh, but but found it worked better for me in the in the morning. So I do a 10 step and then I do uh, extensive work on my uh, 11 step. Um, I pray, I read, I write, uh, write on basic truths that I find in the readings that I do. And I have a, a stack, believe it or not, of 15 or so books on my reading table. I don't read all those every day. I kind of alternate through those books. I always read the two OA daily books. But then I read a lot of others from other programs. So um, I, I read those, I write, I try to make connection with a power greater than myself to understand his will or her will or its will for me, whatever that day may be. I say the serenity prayer, the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, and the eleven step prayer say they direct my thinking line out of the out of the big book. And I also do just for today affirmations. Affirmations are very important to me. I could do the whole talk tonight on affirmations because they have been part of helping me uh, change my negative charge into a positive charge. Depression is in the family, my father and all of his brothers. So I have had the propensity since childhood to have a depressed type of character. So there are some mornings when I wake up in total blackness. Uh, but my 11th step work pulls me out of that and has, has been doing that for all of these years without any kind of medication. Step 12 for me is very real. I devote a great deal of one-on-one -on -one time uh, with sponsors, of course, uh, trying to help others who share my disease. Since my retirement in 97, I've devoted full-time to OA. I've done 40-some um, 
step study retreats around this country and, and Canada. Uh, I've done study after study after study of 15 weeks. I'm about to start another study next week, a couple of weeks with 41 people, too many, 41 people through the steps, a 15 week process. Um, so I've done a lot, a lot of stuff and I do a lot of stuff and that's how I hold on to the program. So the program saved my life, but if I want to hold on to it, I have to keep doing uh, what I did. Let me give you two minutes of some of the changes. Uh, what I'm like now, I have learned to face and deal with life rather than play the victim, whine about it, complain, complain. You know, no more blaming others, no more self-pity. Grow up. I grew up at 41, 42 years old. It's never too late. That's, that's, you know, that's what happened. I've moved from thinking that self-sufficiency that I talked about that I got from my father, I've moved to thinking that was man's highest goal to being willing to ask for help. Uh, I work hard on staying out of self-centeredness and controlling. I've stopped that mental master planning for the world. Uh, I gradually let go of the selfishness. As I think I said before, I, I base my life now on how can I give rather than how can I get. I uh, work hard on flexibility. Rigidity was very a big part of my life when I came here. I've let go in the anger and the resentment, let go of that perfectionism that drove me to always uh, be a failure in my own eyes because I set my standards too high. I didn't talk about the wall that I had around myself, but a wall went up around me in my early 20s. Um, like my father, I became a stone and there was a numbness there. The, I was saying all the words on the outside, but I wasn't feeling anything. There was a wall there. That's all gone. That wall began to come down in the fifth step. So I've moved from feeling inadequate to feeling, okay, I'm useful and I uh, am still useful despite my age. So let me finish up by just saying phase, what I call phase three of my life. The last three years of my life are now the most challenging. I'm 80, by the way, I just turned 80 years old. Uh, three years ago, uh, I have a long back history of back back problems. Three years ago, I had back surgery, and it could be called failed back surgery. Since that back surgery, I have been in chronic pain, uh, and uh, I have neuropathy in both legs. Uh, what does that mean? I give you an example of what it means. So I have a very deteriorated lower spine and some severed spinal nerves, which means ongoing, never-ending nerve stimulation in both legs. Um, I try to stand up or stand up and walk, uh, cannot without severe pain. Uh, I do walk, I can walk a few steps with a cane, but then I need to sit down to lower the pain. Then I get up and do it again for a few paces. With a four-wheeled walker, it's called a rollator. I am supporting my back and legs by holding myself up with my arms and shoulder muscles. So I can walk 15, 20 minutes with the walker, but then I have to stop and rest my arms and shoulders. Uh, the day begins with pain as I get out of bed and head for the bathroom. Standing at the sink, I'm in pain to wash, brush my teeth, comb my hair. Simply leaning on the sink and holding myself up while I'm working through the pain and doing this stuff. Walking to the kitchen continues the severe pain, fixing the coffee, breakfast, etc. And this continues throughout the day, every day. And that's what I mean. That's what chronic pain means. It's, so it's with me 24-7. I have refused the opioids. I am not ready 
for the Okoe Jet. I still have things to do, and I know what can ha what happens with the mind with uh, opioids. So um, at the end of many many days, the thought that pops into my brain is, I can't do this for the rest of my life. I can't do this for the rest of my life. And then there's that old sponsor Charlie's voice from way back when saying, "Get off of the pity pot." You know, he used to say, your, your butt's brown from sitting on that pity pot, Don. Get an hell off of it and get to work and take actions. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, I am continuing to work hard on the program. <clears throat> I continue to be useful in any way I can. I have accepted what is. This is the way I'm going to be for the rest of my life. I will accommodate it as best I can. Zoom has been a, a great thing for me because I can contact all kinds of people through Zoom and do workshops like this, which I have been doing for the last couple of years. Um, I just keep saying to myself, how can I be useful today? How can I use, be useful today? And I am still being useful at the individual and the group and the inner group, the region and the world surface levels uh, all the time. In fact, I work as hard or maybe even harder than I did now in my pre-retirement days um, because of this ongoing pain thing. So that's who I am today. Why do I tell you this? I tell you this because the program saved my life once. Well, it's saving it again now. That's why I call this phase three. Phase one was pre-program. Phase two was those 38, 37 years and now I'm in this final phase of my life, which is full of the pain. Uh, and there's disappointment there. I have to fight the disappointment. I have to fight the anger. I have to fight the resentment. But uh, so what? Life isn't fair. Let me just close with this little thing that I wrote sometime. I don't know when, but it's, it's reality. It says bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. The rain falls on the just and the sun shines on the unjust. That's reality. Everything is a duality. There's no day without night, no sun without darkness, no love without hate, no pleasure without pain, no joy without despair, no forgiveness without anger, no courage without fear. So I can't know the answer to the mysteries, but I have choices and that's what I've learned in this program. I have choices. I'm in charge of how I feel. I'm in charge of what I do. I have free will. So I can choose to embrace the darkness, the anger and the fear, the distrust and the self-pity, or I can choose to embrace life today and live and do the best I can. I choose life. Thank you, OA. That'll do it for me.